Okay, let's get this started. Hi, this is Talking American Studies. My name is Verena Adamick from the University of Potsdam. And this is a rather special episode because I have a second presenter with me. Hi guys, I'm Yasmin. This is Yasmin Künze, student assistant and co-organizer and scripter of this episode. This is a doubly special episode, actually, because not only are we two people, but we're also covering a symposium that was held at the University of Potsdam this October. So that is October 2019. And the symposium was called African-American World Making in the Long 19th Century. Unfortunately, um, of course, we cannot give you all of the talks and we couldn't record the entire symposium. Uh, mostly because that would make for a very, very long, if very interesting episode. Instead, we ambushed some of our speakers and recorded bits and pieces from their ideas and their contributions to the topic. Now, before we go into this, we should maybe explain some of the core terms that framed the symposium. So, on the one hand, we have this idea of the African-American experience in the 19th century, Because in the 19th century, the Atlantic slave system and the Haitian revolution constituted a rather specific context in which people of African descent in the Americas and in the Atlantic world positioned themselves and had to position themselves and also were positioned. Slavery and revolution then both made up their reality. It impacted their identities crucially and changed or influenced their worldview. And we will hear ex some examples for what this resulted in in a few minutes. So, the next term that would need some explaining is world making. This term originates with Nelson Goodman and he originally used it to describe a cognitive act. Yet, since its introduction in the late 1970s, it has also been used to denote the translation into material practice. So this means the changing of the real world, so to speak. It is not the same as worlding, a term that goes back to Heidegger, as worldmaking emphasizes agency. Nonetheless, worldmaking has limits because it is a process of repurposing and recycling. What I mean by that is that power relations of the actual globe influence the worlds being made, and therefore historical worlds are being remade, as Goodman would have argued. In the context of African-American world-making in the long 19th century, this means considering how the trauma of enslavement, violent displacement and systemic racism, the ideological heritage of the colonial oppressors, as well as the hopes that arise with liberation, mobility, immigration, revolution, etc., enter the worlds being created. Well, actually, you don't only have to take it from us, because we got Nicole Baller, who is the Professor for American Studies at the University of Potsdam and a conference co-organizer to expand a little more on these terms. We put the long 19th century there and some of our speakers pointed out that this is a highly disputed term. And of course, um, the question is, do you, do you use certain events that might turn out to be very Eurocentric, for example, in order to demarcate these huge movements um, and what interested us nevertheless was not to take this too much as a clear limit, but to kind of see how things evolve. And we had um, particularly two talks towards the end of the conference that were 20th century talks and that really 
beautifully took many of the structures and patterns and stories that we had talked about in the 19th century into the 20th century, despite, for example, the abolition of slavery and many other historical events that made changes in the lives of African Americans, but you could still see those patterns. Um, and it is equally interesting to go into earlier periods and see how this builds up. So the 19th century is, of course, uh, a time frame when uh, a lot happens in the United States and in Canada and in the Caribbean. Um, but at the same time, looking at the way it kind of bleeds into the, the past and the future turned out to be really fruitful. Uh, we had started our conference with uh, one of our colleagues, Dirk Wiemann, who kind of took us through all the nuances of worlding and world making, um, starting with Heidegger, but then looking at more contemporary connotations. And some of the things that um, that we could use from this talk to then look at African-American strategies and tactics where, for example, um, the post-colonial critique um, of worlding as a colonial tool, as a way in which colonizers basically mapped the globe um, in order to master it and take possession of it. Worlding then in the anti-colonial critique as the attempt to map the world differently so, for example, in uh, Gayatri Spivak or Paul Gilroy's ideas of planetarity and uh, worlding as an eco-critical or eco-feminist tool of thinking of the world as a web of relations and of making vulnerable the subject within this world as just one part of this web of relations. What we also heard from Dirk was um, world-making in a constructivist vein, the idea uh, that world making is always remaking, but also the idea that in world making you do posit an agency, so a subject that has the power to make things happen, to actually make something. And with this, we then looked at African Americans in the long 19th century, and our speakers uh, used all of their examples to basically single out strategies that African Americans developed that we could understand under this rubric of world making. Within post-colonial theory and many other areas of study, Caribbean studies, Atlantic studies, and so on, the question of agency has always been important. And I think that one of the things that post-colonial studies does, as opposed to maybe very um, more radical ideas of deconstructing the subject, um, is to hold on to a certain notion of the subject as having agency. And I think it's interesting that we are talking about um, in the historical examples, and of course also in our contemporary world, people whose agency is being questioned and who have to push back against that and develop strategies of moving something, making their voices heard, but at the same time, and this is where it becomes so interesting to me, if we don't completely deconstruct that idea of subjectivity and agency, we can still find ways of situating ourselves in relations. And that's what I find really interesting uh, in the histories of many African-American communities, but also in the histories of many other communities, um, people and peoples uh, that were placed under the sovereignty of uh, what we call the United States. So now that we had a closer look at the conceptual framework of the symposium, I'd say we should look at our speakers. Yes, and first up, we have Shayla Sabri and Naya Bates. They were a great team at presenting multiple layers to the idea of African-American world-making. What they talked about was history, and more precisely, they talked about the history of the enslaved people that lived and worked at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantations. 
You might have heard of Sally Hemings, who was a slave at Jefferson's plantation. Already in Jefferson's lifetime, his political opponents had made it public that Jefferson had sexual relations and actually also fathered six children with her. The precise nature of this relationship is to this day unknown. That is, there are only sparse sources on Sally's thoughts and feelings about Jefferson. In general, there are few original documents that give us the perception of slaves owned by Jefferson. Naya Bates works at Monticello as a historian to gather and transmit knowledge of slavery. There, she is one of the people designing the exhibitions and tours for the many visitors that come to Monticello, which is, by the way, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So at Monticello, we're telling the stories of enslaved people uh, by recreating the landscape of slavery, by restoring those spaces so that visitors who come on tour and visit Monticello uh, can engage more deeply with the story of slavery. And could you quickly just say what kind of sources you're using, maybe? Sure. Um, so we do that work by looking at uh, the archaeological record. We look at documentary evidence. Uh, we look at uh, records from visitors to Monticello, whether those are letters or uh, accounts in Jefferson's family papers. Uh, but we also do that through the Getting Word Oral History Project and the oral histories that we've collected from people descended from uh, the enslaved community. Could you give one or two examples of the sort of pushback you get for your work? Sure. Uh, so we, we occasionally get pushback from visitors about uh, slavery or Sally Hemings or uh, just individual stories of enslaved people at Monticello. Um, there was just a big write-up in the Washington Post about a visitor uh, who went to a site similar to ours and said something like, well, I didn't come here to learn about slavery. I came to learn about the garden. Uh, and we'll see pushback come in the form of challenges to our guides, uh, questions about their knowledge, their authority, their ability to tell these stories authentically. Um, you know, people asking or stating like, oh, this is not so bad, you know, looking at our restored spaces, spaces that are built for visitors that are clean and nice uh, and necessarily that way. And they'll say things like, oh, it's not so bad. So we, we get that kind of pushback, but we're, we're become, I think we're trying to improve the way that we respond in those instances. Yeah. <laughs> A different approach is taken by Shayla Sabreem. She writes poetry, and her collection Mistress just came out, shout out to you Shayla, congratulations, where she uses historical sources to explore the gaps of history, so that what we cannot know. Uh, my collection Mistress looks at uh, the black female experience and representation of black women through the lenses of Sally Hemings, who was enslaved at Monticello, and a contemporary speaker who bears my name. Um, and so the work that Monticello has done to unearth a lot of history, whether that's through um, access to primary sources, secondary resources, the archaeology, the exhibitions that they've created from what they've discovered, have been really integral to my research to adding texture and, and descriptions that really fill out and flesh out the stories that I'm trying to create about Sally Hemings. Um, there are a lot of gaps in history, um, so it requires a lot of literary imagination, and that literary imagination was invaluably supported by the work done by Monticello. Now, moving from Monticello, which is situated in Virginia, which was a slave state at the time, to Canada, where slavery was officially banned in 1833. And as you all know, um, Canada at the time was still part of the British Empire. We have Nele Savalish up next. She's from the University of Mainz, and she just published her first book, in which she looked at the history of black people who fled slavery in the U.S. and ended up in Canada. Because 
slavery had been banned there, Canada appeared as a safe haven to those trying to escape chattel slavery. And so it became a strategic and tactical site for African-American world making. So I think that what we see is Canada is presented in the 19th century as sort of a Canaan and a promised land for black people because people say there's no slavery there, so black people can be free and they can leave free, lead free lives, and the United States is all bad, you know, it's connected to slavery. It, uh, you know, it only will abolish slavery uh, after the Civil War, um, and Canada has always this position of moral higher ground, and that's very powerful. Um, that's a very powerful narrative that becomes important for black fugitives you know, who are looking for places to go um, outside the realm of slavery. Um, and I think it's also a very problematic narrative because it does not often consider that slavery was practiced on Canadian soil um, until 1833 officially. Um, and so it leaves out all of these problems that Canadian racism, anti-black discrimination, black oppression, um, and it's a side of the metal that is not talked about and mm -hmm. that black people also do not often talk about. But it creates real problems on the ground for black fugitives who come into the country. The promises and also the problems of African-American world-making in Canada can be observed when looking at the so-called Dawn community. That is Dawn as in the sun rises. So Dawn was a community for black people in Canada, which was set up around a newly founded school in which the fugitives would learn basic reading skills, manual labor and trades so as to prepare them for the life after slavery. Dawn is one of the four major settlements in Canada West that came into being in the first half of the 19th century. Dawn was founded in 1842 by Josiah Henson, who is probably one of the most famous uh, fugitives from the United States. Um, he founds the settlement um, along with Hiram Wilson, who was a white um, abolitionist, mm -hmm. um, and probably probably another secret uh, partner. And they set this up close to Dresden, which is a community um, in, in Canada West, you know, mm -hmm. and not too far from the American border, um, inland and The project is to found a black manual labor school, uh, labor school, which is the British American Institute that provides basic practical um, education for black children and adults. And from there, it draws so much attention and, it, you know, it's quite successful that people start to settle around the British American Institute. And this becomes known as the Dawn Settlement. Um, unfortunately, Dawn, um, has had a lot of trouble with funding problems and leadership problems and negative sort of publicity and media attention. Um, and it finally disbanded in 1868. And Josiah Hansen was always at the forefront of these conflicts and these accusations of fraud and mismanagement. And this is why this has become quite um, a famous case in Black Canadian history. So you already addressed that, you know, it didn't last. Mm -hmm. So could you say something, some of the reasons why you think the label failure does not quite cut it mm -hmm. for Don? I find um, calling Don a failure is a very harsh judgment. And it, you know, I think we have to ask who's making these judgments. And it's usually white 20th century historians who call it a failure for whatever reason. I mean, how do you define that? What is your criterion that has not been met 
by Dawn to make it a failure? Is it economic reasons, right? Um, is it the number of settlers? It was never very big, right? So we were not talking about a thousand people. We're probably not even talking about 200 people. Um, but so what is the categories that you, that you open up when you say Dawn is a failure? And I think, um, it's very, is a very categorical judgment and it excludes sort of the importance that communities have and the, yes, utopian ideas, you know, that stand behind that. The notion of racial uplift, uh, a community outside of slavery that is founded by black people for black people. I think that's a tremendous, um, impetus and motivation. Um, and yes, so the conflicts that arise, um, are conflicts that many other communities on the frontier and in the hinterland we're facing at the time. It's not unique to Dawn and it's not something that should define Dawn forever. So mm -hmm. I think we need to reconsider like people who settled there built a community that did last and that formed meaningful relationships um, amongst them. And that is, I think, more important than to say, yeah, well, then it was disbanded and so it's a failure. Of course, education of formerly enslaved people was also an issue in the U.S., Especially starting with the end of the Civil War in 1865, so the period called Reconstruction, there is a debate in the USA on how to educate the recently freed and what kind of education to provide. Not only were many of the formerly enslaved illiterate, there were different ideas how much education should be provided. Fearing an uprise and actually the general rise of black people, it was argued to only provide them with manual skills and not teach them to understand their rights or access higher education. That way, they would provide a reliable workforce for white capitalists. On the other hand, there were also those who pushed for all paths of education being opened. One of these colleges and the conflict surrounding African-American education was the topic of Michael Drexler, professor at Bucknell University, Pennsylvania. After the Civil War, then uh, there was a huge vacuum in what to do with uh, the um, formerly enslaved population, and only 5% of whom were literate at all. So the, the the process of crafting schools and creating opportunities for them to gain the kind of literacy they would need to be productive um, citizens of the nation state um, was in great need. So when we talk about white influence over African-American education and supervision of those institutions, that is clearly the dominant story that I that I'm concerned with. But um, there was there, there there was a space for uh, former slaves to recreate community and imagine for themselves the kind of educational capacities that they would want to have without such uh, white supervision as well. I think it's really important to acknowledge their role in creating these institutions for themselves. Yeah. And, and I'll be talking about the um, conflict over what these schools should look like. Um, it actually is a developmental narrative that uh, begins actually with higher aspirations for the schools that uh, after the fall of Reconstruction was redirected by um, states that now controlled their own destinies again, southern states that controlled their own destinies again, redirected funds away from liberal arts um, grounded institutions to the model of Tuskegee, the more vocational labor intensive um, training centers. The importance of this independent black intellectual culture should not be underestimated. 
numerous African-American luminaries to this day attended historically black colleges, such as, for example, Toni Morrison, Langston Hughes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Spike Lee. In the next snippet, Eric Riedling, who's a professor at Martin Luther University in Halle, gives an outlook on his work regarding another famous historically black college alumna, and she's often referred to as the genius of the South, author Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Hurston um, is a very um, interesting person because I, I argued in my paper that she used dialect writing as a way of world making. And I thought that ties nicely in with, you know, what all the other speakers have done, but pushes it into more the literary direction, you know, um, and focuses on world making as a creative act, as a creative metaphoric act. And so I was interested in how this creative act was used by her to translate her emotions into a psychological identity and how these metaphors evoke different identities but also different emotions. All right, with this we arrived at the 20th century and almost at the end of this episode. We would like to give the final word again to Nicole Valla. I love the way in which people really got into each other's talks, in which people talked constructively to each other, in which um, early career and later career scholars interacted. And it seemed like a conversation that was going on there. And I hope that we can meet again and have more of these conversations. I'm really grateful to everybody who was so generous with their knowledge and their time. Of course, we also very much enjoyed the symposium. And actually, we learned that recording whilst organizing is a special kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> if you want to find out more about the symposium, we have the link and a list of works cited on our webpage, talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. Well, special thanks go to all of our speakers, including each other. Thank you. Thank you, Verena. And to the University of Potsdam for sponsoring this podcast as part of the initiative Innovative Lehre. So they bought us a whole bunch of new equipment and actually sponsored Yasmin. Thank you, University of Potsdam. <laughs> We'd also like to thank Sebastian Jablonski and Anja Sojumnes for their support at the conference. And we want to give a special shout out to Hannah Spahn, who was integral in the conceptualization and in the planning of the conference, but then unfortunately could not attend and reap the fruits of her labor. Any comments and queries you might have are, as always, welcome. Talking American Studies is everywhere. It is on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And you can reach me via email under talkingamericanstudies at posteo.net. You can follow the podcast. No, you should follow the podcast and share it via Spotify, iTunes, or the current homepage, talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. I hope, no, we hope, we, we hope. hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll listen in again. Bye. Bye. Toll. Du meinst nochmal, aber es war schon ziemlich gut. Vielleicht, wenn du die Namen aufsagst, vielleicht kannst du nicht so tot klingen. <lacht> es war gut, aber du klingst halt tot, ne? Okay.